to Nerds of the Roundtable, a podcast on a quest for quality pop culture. I'm Jamie. And I'm Dwayne. And I'm Sammy. And on this episode, hold on guys, where are we? We are, I mean, we're reviewing back to school, right? Because we're at HerdCon at Marshall University. Go Herd! I don't think, is that what we were supposed to watch? What? What? Back to school. I thought it was uh, Ghostbusters. You know yeah. the, the the filmation one with the the gorilla and stuff like that. No, I watched the 2016 one with the uh, the rebooted one. Right? Okay. Oh, guys, oh guys, Thor guys, was guys, awesome in that. Uh, no, in all seriousness, we're here at HerdCon at Marshall University, uh, the inaugural year, first year of this event. We are reviewing Ghostbusters 1984. We have the Ghostbusters just down the way here. We can literally see a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man right behind us. Uh, and Slimer. And um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a little noisy in here, so the sound quality is going to be different than you're used to for a normal show. But um, the environment here has been great today, and uh, we're really thankful for the invitation we got to come and be at HerdCon this year. Yeah, this has really been a, a treat, getting to meet all the folks here. Uh, uh, Heather Elise, Jim Pagarillo uh, were kind enough to invite and... Uh, allow us to come and be a part and i'm gonna tell you something the, the costumes are looking great all of the tables are looking good and uh so um we're going to be um uh reviewing today uh the 1984 classic ghostbusters directed by ivan reitman starring uh lots of funny people from the 80s definitely definitely yeah, you have dan Aykroyd, bill murray ivan reitman have you said already harold ramus Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, Sigourney Weaver. Absolutely. And Sigourney Weaver, I don't think she'd been in very much comedy before this. And she, she did a great job in here. Definitely. And um, so um, as we open up, let's open up some opening thoughts and grades. Um, so, Sammy, what, what's, what's been your history with Ghostbusters? All right. You know, as far as Ghostbusters, I went back and forth with this because there is that nostalgia factor of growing up at this time period, watching these movies, watching the cartoons. But overall, as revisiting with kind of adult eyes, I think my opening grade for this is going to be a B plus. It was hilarious. It was still fun. But a lot of the effects, especially the stop motion stuff, just doesn't hold up for yeah. me anymore. Yeah, the dogs especially look bad. Yeah, the terror dogs were still a little yeah. iffy now. Yeah. You do realize you gave this movie a B plus with the Ghostbusters behind us. Yes, I know. Okay. I know. Okay, they do Break. have the proton packs <laughs> and the catch device, Jamie. <laughs> Well, Dwayne, what about you, man? What are um, yeah, this is a, this is definitely a, one of those nostalgic movies that was probably better originally. The effects <laughs> did not hold up, but it was a great movie. But just for enjoyment, I'm going to give it an A minus. A minus. Okay. Um, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I think I watched this movie way too young. I mean, as I, that's one of the things that as really struck me. As most 80s movies, we've watched way too young. Yeah, that's, that's been a <laughs> Very thing. Very much so. But uh, I remember watching this as a kid, and I, I don't think I caught how much innuendo there is in this movie and how much, um, you know, not kid-friendly material no. is in the movie. But, nope. But, uh, I mean, for me, like, one of the, the, I mean, I hate to say this, but I actually like Ghostbusters 2 more ah. than Ghostbusters 1. Really? I do. Okay. And um, and I think that part of it is, and this is just, I'm not giving any spoilers away, like, I can't, like, you no, know, everybody's seen this movie, but I think that the plot holds together better. And the second movie, where this one is just a funny movie. They're right. just being funny, but there's not what what plot there is is ridiculous. Well, on the commentary, uh, you know, they the 
producers and the special effects crew. You know, all these, all the, the guys and, and the, the women who worked on this said the whole point of it was to be a comedy. Yeah. You know, they were using state-of-the-art special effects. I mean, you had people that had worked on Star Wars, people who worked on Poltergeist on this movie. You know, and the whole point was to be funny. Yeah. Well, and they succeeded, and that's why I'm going to give it an A-. minus. Yeah, it definitely um, succeeded being funny. It, it did feel kind of sketchy. Yeah. You know, like a, a collection of funny scenes together. Yeah, and there's a lot of ad-libbing going on. <coughs> definitely. I mean, you can feel it. Yeah, definitely. But, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a really funny movie. And, I mean, it, it's not a plot-driven movie, so it's okay that the plot's not perfect. Exactly. Um, but it's, a, it's just really funny. It's, it's fun. And it's okay to have movies like that. Exactly. Not everything, yes. ha- not everything has to be super deep. No, definitely not. I mean, hey, you, guys, you, newsflash. Entertainment <laughs> is for enjoyment. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, the, the, most of the attenders at the uh, HerdCon this week um, don't know how we do things. And so um, we do the world-famous Wikipedia breakdown of, uh, oh. of our movie. And Wikipedia has never been wrong. Never. never. The internet never lies. Never. And so I'm gonna, we're going to start off with breaking down the movie a section at a time. And I'm going to read part one for us. So Peter Vinkman, Raymond Stance, and Egon Spengler are scientists investigating the paranormal at Columbia University. After they lose their jobs following a botched ghost investigation at the New York Public Library, they establish Ghostbusters, a paranormal investigation and elimination service. They open their business in a disused firehouse and develop high-tech equipment to capture ghosts. Now, I am married to a librarian, so all of the library stuff at the beginning goes over like a gangbusters at my house. Oh, I guarantee. Yeah, how horrified was she when all of the cards... The Dewey Decibel System come flying out of those drawers. I was, I'm not a librarian, but I was having kittens when I seen all those fly out. Yeah. But, you know, the, the first scene you see the, the librarian walking through and the books shuffling around the weird things happening really established this movie of yeah. how weird it was going to be. Yeah. I, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, but you're right. It sets the tone for the movie. But also, like, you know what you're getting into. It's a paranormal movie, but also it's going to be fun. And it's not just because you saw Bill Murray on the poster, but because the, the tone of the opening scene is, it's a little bit slapstick. Definitely. You know, and, and think about it today, though. You know, how many people, especially kids watching this today, would have any idea what those cards were that were flying out? They would just be thinking, oh, there are cards flying out of this shelf. Yeah. You know, some of us had to use the Dewey Decimal System at one point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, and that has to be just a foreign concept. For anybody younger than us, basically. Yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing with that is, you know, you go from this very quiet scene to the card catalog to finally, you know, our our librarian screaming. Yeah. And then it goes straight into the theme. And that's probably what more people know than anything else is that theme. Yeah. It's it's memorable. I mean, whether it's any good or not, I don't. I mean, I, I don't want to <laughs> don't want to comment. But it is memorable, and, and everybody knows the words to it. Yeah, oh, the, definitely. The famous Ghostbusters theme by Ray Parker Jr. Yeah. Ain't afraid no ghost. That he, <laughs> that he apparently came up with in like an hour one evening. Yeah. Wow. And and you know a lot of t- being a musician, that's a lot of time when your inspiration comes. The song will write itself. Yeah. yeah. Desperation sets in. Yeah, but now the the. And then you go from the library to the scene with Bill Murray. <laughs> I love this running scene. the experiments, <laughs> trying to uh, trying to sw- uh, manipulate the co-ed. Yeah, oh, his quote unquote experiments, right? He was being so shady. Oh you mercy! Paid, we paid you five dollars. And I, I, part of what I love about that scene so much is, I mean, the guy gets one right, 
exactly. Bill Murray's like, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have time for you. I'm, I'm focused on this lady over here, so we're gonna pretend you got that wrong. You know, it just shows who he is. Yeah, and you know what's really funny is that is truly a, a type of experiment that was conducted at one time. That idea of negative reinforcement and how does it affect affect things such as ESP or or whatever. But obviously. Peter's using this to try to seduce this young woman. Yeah, his motivations are different. Oh, definitely. And he really comes off as just a shyster. I mean. And ask yourself this question. How did this man defend a thesis? Right? (laughs) How did this man write and defend a thesis to become a doctor? Maybe something happened in his life. I mean, maybe maybe something broke in him at some point. You got to wonder. Uh, yep. you know, maybe he's a high high level shyster. There you go. There and you then go. we find out truly what they're doing there at the uh, university with uh, Dan Aykroyd's entrance, um, speaking about the the call that they had received from the library. Mm. And then you realize, oh, these guys are supposed to be investigating and going through these situations. And when they actually go to encounter the ghost. They have no idea what they're getting into. No clue of what's going on. And I love the, when they're interviewing the librarian. Why they're having her laying down, I don't know. I mean, why that's even part of the the process, I don't understand. Oh, my. But then uh, the questions they're asking are just so off the wall. I mean, just it just weird. And I agree with the head librarian guy. Like, why would you even ask her that? Exactly. Why, is it, why are some of these questions even necessary? We won't go into details. Uh, yeah. We are a family-friendly show. So yeah, we're not going to go into yeah. There's a, there's a few spots here we're not going to be able to go into detail. Yeah, there's, exactly. yeah, there's a little bit of shady stuff yeah. going on here. Yeah, a little bit of uh, off-color humor, uh, which the '80s is famous for. And uh, then you find out that they uh, have been kicked out of university because they're not producing results. And yep. Bill Murray just doesn't get that. You mean we've got to go work in the private sector? Yeah. Who needed to have results? You remember what Ray says outside after they get fired? I've been in the private sector. They expect results. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something that that makes that. That's a very funny line of yeah. thought. But then, um, then they go like Peter has the big idea. Let's go into business. Exactly. And, and um, I love when they find the firehouse. And I love the way Egon and Peter are trying to lowball this guy. Like right. It's messed up. The wiring's bad. And Ray finds and the Ray pole. Says, this place is great. Let's buy it now. <laughs> You know, and I think that that's the interesting interaction between these three characters. You've got yeah. Peter, who is, like you say, kind of the the shyster, the used car salesman, game show host. You know, kind of game, show <laughs> game show host, show definitely. Host, You've got Egon, who's this very straight lace. You know, just the facts. Yeah. And and then you've got Ray in the middle, who's just this this ball of enthusiasm, and I think that definitely comes across. And kind of a big kid. Yeah, just a big kid. Yeah, and I love the way that he sees the pole. And it, I thought it was very character revealing. He goes, hey, does this pole work? And then just slides down. <laughs> he doesn't wait for the answer. Exactly. He just slides down the pole. All right, I think we're ready to move on to part two. Yeah, part two I'll take. Uh, on their first call at a hotel, Egon warms, warns the group never to cross energy streams of their proton pack weapons, as this could cause a catastrophic explosion. They capture their first ghost, Slimer, and deposit it in a special containment unit in the firehouse. As a paranormal activity increases in the city, they hire a fourth member, Winston Zedmore, to cope with demand. I was surprised how quick uh, Slimer come through and was captured. My memory was so much more of him. Yeah, and I I had misremembered a lot of stuff in this movie. 
Well, you know, I think some of it probably overlaps with if you watch the cartoon yeah. and then there was Slimer had his own cartoon. So it, it, you know, the movie itself, Slimer wasn't a, as large a character. Yeah. yeah he, he just kind of took off as a meme, you know, just, uh, I guess pre meme, you know, uh, and I, I, I found that a few spots along the way I had imported scenes from the second movie into this movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah I was oh, remembering stuff happening in this one that didn't n- never happened. Yeah, I'm sure we all imported stuff, even from the cartoon yeah. and, and commercials even. you know, I remember yeah. uh, the Ghostbusters and Slimer in particular being in commercials. Yeah. Did um, did the whole thing with the proton packs not crossing the streams, did it, I mean, it struck me as just kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Like, How so? What are you thinking? Well, like, um, like okay, where did they come from? Did he going to be these last night? Right. And how does he know we're going to destroy all life on Earth? Right, and, yeah, and I know they talk. make the reference of there being, you know, the unlicensed nuclear reactors in the pack, so to speak. Yeah. But, you know, the, the interactions with the proton packs is kind of telling later on, uh, you know, they're so afraid of them coming in contact, and later on they actually have to use them. And, and I want to get into that in that section of the movie, but but it really sets up something that they have to overcome as individuals. Yeah. Well, you know, even in the elevator, when Ray's like, switch me on, Egon <laughs> switches on the proton pack, and Peter and Egon both back away, you know, slowly. <laughs> now, if you had something that dangerous, though, would you put it on Ray and Peter's backs? <laughs> and put it in their hands? I think I would, I mean, Ray would just do something bad over enthusiasm. I wouldn't let Peter near these things. Yes. Yeah. Now, guys, we're, we're missing something very important here. We have Annie Potts as oh, their secretary. Yes. yes. The lovely Annie Potts as the secretary. And also Sigourney Weaver as their first call. Um, and we have the refrigerator. The eggs frying on the counter in the refrigerator. Zool. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that, as far as that whole scene... You know, and going into when when Pete finally comes to the, finally does get to the apartment. I mean, that's just an hilarious line. He looks at her and says, you know, generally you don't see that kind of behavior in a major appliance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, Bill Murray always has to have the answer to everything. Yeah, and and apparently he ad-libbed every line in this movie. I mean, just, I mean, didn't use a single word from the script. I could see that. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And what I thought was really kind of impressive is like in the scenes that Sigourney Weaver has to share with him. That her without the comedic background is able just to keep pace with it. Yeah, but I think that that's probably a testament to the type of actor she is. Yeah, and the, and the line we laughed at earlier about the her him, her calling him a game show host. Oh yes, that mm-hmm. was not in the script. That was not the line. Huh. The line was used car salesman, and she just ad libbed on the fly, went with game shows, and and to me that that line sticks out. That's a memorable line because it's so different. That's not yes. normally that's not the go to yeah. line. There. Yeah, these characters are really humanized by their. Uh, you know, actors in this movie. Uh, we also have the uh, hilarious and lovable Rick Moranis. I love. As the next I one love. He is probably one of my favorites. Yeah. Lewis Tully. Throughout Lewis, yeah. And his desire to connect with her. Yeah. And that and that was one of the things that I had imported from the second movie. I was remembering scenes of Lewis that happened ah. there, happening here. And um, I, but I love Lewis, and I love that he keeps locking himself out of his apartment. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a great awful little gag. thing. Yeah. You know, this movie has so many of those little like sight gags. Yeah. That that just do make you chuckle when you see them. Absolutely. And uh, and then we have the fourth Ghostbuster show up. Now this was supposed to be Eddie Murphy. Ah. And um, it was originally supposed to be a three-person cast of Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, and Eddie Murphy. 
And um, when Belushi you know, passed away, they rewrote the movie. And then I think at the last second, Eddie Murphy pulled out. And so they had to, um, on the fly, and I think that's why he comes in so late in the movie. They were right. still figuring out what they were going to do without Eddie Murphy. Oh, wow. But uh, I love Ernie Hudson in this movie. Just that him bringing so much like, just being so human and so rational. Like you people, he's the guy who gets back and say, "You people are crazy." Yeah, he's, and he's the guy just trying to find a job. Absolutely. Yeah, he just yeah. says, "I need a steady paycheck." I, yeah. I love the list of things that Annie Potts asks him <laughs> if he believes in. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, "I believe whatever you want me to, as long as it comes with a paycheck." That's right. It's great. But Ernie Hudson is such a is just a, a great actor, you know, oh, and, yeah. just, and just such a a, a presence on screen. He, I just, he truly has some range. Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen him come in the movie earlier. I would just like to see more of him in the movie. And let me ask you all: How '80s is Ray's dream sequence? <laughs> I mean, how very 1980s is this dream sequence? Now, yeah. this movie is the child of an era, <laughs> very <Absolutely>. much so. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one of many scenes that couldn't have been filmed. In any no, other decade. There's no way. Yeah. I mean, just some of the ways that that even like Vinkman flirts with uh, with Sigourney Weaver's character. There's no way. Yeah, there's no way. That, that couldn't fly today. No. But uh, okay, now that we've hired Winston, let's want to read part three for us? Sure. I'll hit part three for us here, guys. So, the Ghostbusters are retained by cellist Dana Barrett, whose apartment is haunted by a demonic spirit. Zul, a demigod worshipped as a servant to Gozer the Gozerian, a shape-shifting <laughs> god of destruction. Vinkman completes, competes with Dana's neighbor, accountant Louis Tully, for her affections. As the Ghostbusters investigate, Dana is possessed by Zul the gatekeeper, while Louis is possessed by her counterpart, Vins Clortho the key master. Both demons speak of the coming of Gozer the Destructor and the release of the imprisoned ghosts. The Ghostbusters take steps to keep the two apart. Okay, guys, weren't the Gozers on Fraggle Rock? <laughs> I don't know, but this is this is the part of the movie where I just I I mean that's that's my only hesitation with this movie is the plot. I I don't care for it. I mean, just be honest. I don't buy all the stuff with Gozer and Zool. Right. And that a nut job from the late 1800s built this whole building to be a lightning rod for the supernatural, to be these ancient Hittite gods become or whatever. <laughs> I'm just like, man, I don't buy this at all. We know Gozer was big in Samaria. So. <laughs> <laughs> big in Samaria. Yeah. I mean, so that's just part of the stuff that I got. Anything, anytime we're not saying the word Gozer in a scene is a winner for me. I just, but uh, but they try to sell it. I mean, Sigourney Weaver, I mean, she is, is believably frightened. And I love how frustrated she gets when it's not there, when they come back and open the fridge. You know, Vinkman's joking about what's in there, but it's right. like, yeah, that's terrifying, you know. But, but yeah, this is just a not, this is part of the movie that I just, I don't, I don't love. Exactly. Well, you know, at this time, you know, you also do get that introduction of, of Walter Peck, which in turn <laughs> creates some interesting dialogue back and forth throughout the rest, the remainder of this movie. So. And he's perfectly named. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I saw a thing online when I was doing some research where like, his whole life, like the rest of his life since making this movie, people have come up to him. Oh, no. Giving him grief about how big of a jerk he was oh, in this movie. That's oh, that's well. Yeah. You know, and this is that part when we were talking about where the special effects don't hold up. You see yeah. the terror dogs running across the street, chasing Lewis. 
you know, you can tell that it's stop motion animation. You can tell that the the color separation doesn't exactly work. Yeah. You know, they're still using a lot of green screen here. They're matting. They're doing all of those practical effects. And, and Dwayne said this was state of the art. I mean, I I don't know about that. I mean, Return of the Jedi came out the year before, and I just felt like it's it's a different label. Oh know? no, I never said it was state of the art. I said you can really tell where these effects. You know, uh, I thought you meant at the time it was. Oh, at the time, no, at the time it was state of the art. I think you said cutting edge or something, something like that. And I, I'm just not sure about that. I mean, there was some better. I mean, Dune. I mean, Dune came out around this time and looked better. And um, and so I'm, I'm just not sure. I mean, some of these just don't look good. And I, I, it probably is in large part because, you know, we've gotten used to how good effects are now. But uh, yeah, some of the stuff's hard to look at now. Now, obviously, we do have probably one of the most famous quotes from the movie in this. There is no Dana, only Zool. <laughs> and, you, and you see these memes constantly. <laughs> but, uh, and so Lewis gets in, which, I mean, I wish he had gotten a little bit, a little bit more screen time before he gets possessed. But um, yeah, I we're just, just kind of introduced to him, and, and we have to figure out that he's just kind of duelist. And, yeah. And I, I think that, uh, I mean, there's a little bit, like, with, with Sigourney Weaver, you can tell right off the bat that she's possessed. She's not who she was before. Exactly. You see a complete change in, in her character. Yeah. But, I mean, Lewis, even as he's possessed, is still kind of goofy. Like, he's wandering yeah, he's around. Still, he still plays a possession kind of subtly. Yeah. And he's he's talking to the horse instead of the driver. I mean, there's <laughs> all this stuff going on, you know. And I just, I just, I don't know. I just, I, I do enjoy that part of the of the plot, of the story, that, that, the way Lewis plays it. Right. <laughs> oh, um, you know, obviously during this time, you know, we've got that the one part with Lewis where, you know, the NYPD does take him to the Ghostbusters and Egon's doing all the tests and all those things. And when you, you know, they've already set up with when they were scanning Dana, you see them scanning, scanning her and then you see on, on the, the monitor it's her. But when you see Lewis being scanned, you see the terror dog on, <laughs> yeah. the, on the screen. So I thought that, that was a funny little effect that you know paid off once you know we got to uh, Lewis there. Yeah. I just I love Rick Moranis though. I mean I just I mean I just wish there'd been more stuff we could have had him in, you know. Oh, it'd been great. And I, and I noticed on his IMDb page that he's doing a, a little bit more acting again. And so he's not Yeah, he fully... took some time off, so I would really yeah. like to see him in some more stuff. Well, that's, that's part of what I, I respect about him. I, I love him as an actor, but also just respect him. I mean, after his, his wife passed away, he just took all that time. He retired from acting to take care of his kids and be a good dad. I just I respect that about no, him. No, definitely. And um, I'm sorry, Dwayne's throwing things at me. I got distracted. <laughs> Apparently I needed to be, though. <laughs> that was that was that a paper wad for a break or because it was my a paper wad for a microphone. I'm sorry. Um, if, <laughs> if if you guys are done with this section, we can take a take a brief break. Absolutely, and, take a break. Uh, uh, take a break. And welcome back. And we're going to continue our um, breakdown of 1984's Ghostbusters with part four. Uh, the aptly named Walter Peck, an environmental protection agency lawyer, has the Ghostbusters arrested for operating an unlicensed waste as unlicensed waste handlers. He orders a ghost containment system deactivated, causing an, an ex explosion that releases all the ghosts. 
the ghosts wreak havoc throughout New York City, allowing Louis Vins to escape. Consulting blueprints of Dana's apartment building, the Ghostbusters learned that mad doctor and cult leader Ivo Shandor, declaring humanity too sick to exist after World War I, designed the building as a gateway to summon Gozer and bring about the end of the world. And these names continue to impress. <laughs> yeah, these, these names continue to impress. But yeah, we, uh, we see the bureaucracy get involved and turn loose the ghosts unwittingly. And, and this is more of the plot that I just, I don't love. And I, I got the time error wrong earlier. It's after World War One, but still. I mean, all this time to create this antenna, to um, to draw in these, what was it, Sumerian gods or whatever. Why would Sumerian gods be in New York City anyway? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't I don't love the plot. But, I mean, I love the way when Walter Peck comes to the to the firehouse, that whole interaction, um the way he brings the comps in and the interact. I mean, I just, I love that scene. Well, even with Janine at the front of it, when he comes in and she's like, hold on, I know my rights. You know? <laughs> it's great. And he goes through the list of everything he brought, yeah. you know, to, to be able to have the right to be able to check out the place. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I love that, that Egon tries to warn him, you know, like, Hey, this thing's going to blow up. You know, everything is, it's just huge. It's just like a bomb. If we, if we, I'm like, then why do you have it? <laughs> <laughs> there has to be a better way. You know, but the thing is, you know, the Walter Peck, obviously, you know, the character itself is a jerk. Yeah, he's okay? not the villain. But if you don't have him, then the rest of the movie can't happen. Yeah, it doesn't work. There, nope. has, there has to be somebody gumming up the works. Right. You've and got so, to get the containment system turned off. Absolutely. In order to set up the final events. And, you know, Peck works as that character. Well, everything is kind of, you know, coming up daisies for him until the end. I mean, they're they're famous, they're popular, and um, and the, I mean, they're on the commercials. Everybody knows who they are. People are applauding when they're going down the streets. Everything is everything's coming up daisies until Peck shows up. Well, even Larry King loves them, and Casey Kasem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these guys turn into celebrities. Yeah, they're and they're you know rescuing the city from. And uh, and I and I like when. Um, when the I forget who was doing the interview at the time, but they asked him like, "Hey, this, you know, the burning question, Elvis, how's he doing?" <laughs> <laughs> I just yes. I love that. I love that line. But yeah. uh, and so I mean, we just oh, oh I meant to mention from our back from our die, our Die Hard episode. Oh, yes. Did you notice who was playing a cop again? Reginald Bell Johnson, Mr. Winslow, Mr. Winslow. Yes. once again in uniform. Definitely. But um, once again, I just the, the plot's absurd, and be, it's best you know not thought about or dwelt upon, and we just move on because it, it's still funny. Even the stuff that doesn't make sense, or I mean, you just you kind of it's so much fun, yeah. and it's so fun you just kind of roll with it. You just got to roll with it, yeah. And we and during this section of the movie, we see you know as we were talking earlier with the hellhounds, the effects, and and the uh, you have uh, the gatekeeper and the key. Yes. Searching out each other, and they're kind of lost around the city, and they're. Yeah, and uh, e- Egon has been trying to keep them apart, but yes. but but I love this classic. Could not be kept apart. No, of course not. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's the 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 classic love story. But um, we're gonna move on to part five. Now, after all of this breaks loose, part five here, the Ghostbusters are released from custody to combat the supernatural crisis. On the apartment building roof, Zool and Vins open the gate between dimensions and transform into supernatural hellhounds. 
Gozer, in the form of a woman, is attacked by the team. Gozer vanishes, but demands that the Ghostbusters choose the form of the Destructor. Ray inadvertently recalls a beloved corporate mascot from his childhood, and Gozer appears as the giant Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, which is about 20 feet away from us, folks, and attacks the city. Um, as we mentioned before, the, uh, the Ghostbusters are here in costume, and they have a, oh, I would say 15 foot... Yeah. It's not small. No. <laughs> Stay puffed marshmallow man. Now, did you notice earlier in the movie uh, the the placement, uh, the product placement, when uh, Sigourney Weaver comes in and lays her eggs and unpacks her grocery bags? There's a bag of Stay puffed marshmallows on the counter. Ah. Oh. And I and I think I think earlier in the movie there's a, a billboard too. Like there's a some advertising. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. There's some Stay puffed. So we, we're getting hints early on here. But um. You know, and obviously when, you know, once again, going back to uh, Bill Murray and and just the, the lines, right? So, and very often I am known to use the line, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria, <laughs> <laughs> to describe a chaotic situation. Yeah, and I love that they've been, I mean... The, we, we skipped the jail scene. There's a scene where they're in jail because you know, uh, Walter Peck has arrested them. Yes. And because of the, all the stuff they got out of the containment you know, unit, that there's this huge outbreak. It's not just Gozer and Zool, you know, Rick and Shop. It's, it's all the ghosts that got out of there. And so they bring them back. And I just I love the whole interaction with how, I mean, just obstinate Peter is. And how you much of a, getting all this? Yeah, how much of a jerk, you know, Walter Peck is. And I love the, the priest... Who's there? Like I don't get don't put me on record here, but it's just it's just it's just a great scene. And uh, later on, we haven't got to it yet. My favorite quote of the movie is in this scene, and it's not spoken by one of the Ghostbusters. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah. A little bit of foreshadowing there. So we um so now now the effects really get painful to look at as. I mean, I was cool with Lewis looking like rumpled with the crazy hair, Sigourney Weaver, whatever Sigourney Weaver was doing. Um, but then they become claymation dogs or something. Yes. I, those yeah. effects do not hold up. Yeah, it's almost like uh, the Temple of Doom where the wax candle melts. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> yeah, look good. It does not hold up. No. You know, one of the things in, in that scene is, is that I really appreciated, though, you know, because we get our hero moment. Right. We get our affirmation of what these guys have become for the city. You know, yeah. the earthquake happens. They fall in, into the, this crevice. And then the next thing you know, as they're crawling out, you know, everybody just starts cheering. So you get your big hero moment there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that is part of the heroic you know, thing for them here is like, you know, the city needs them and they answer the call. I mean, they're I mean. Yeah, one of them's a game show host or whatever. <laughs> but when the city needed them, they showed up and they were ready to deliver, you know. And, and they so they, they're the four people who walk into that building by themselves. Yeah, and what they're dealing with is not a ghost at a time. They're dealing with the havoc that everything they've captured along the way is doing is releasing. Yeah, and uh, and so I love that when they're when they're called upon, it's up to them to choose the form, yes. you know, of the uh, <laughs> of the destructor. And I love that all of them try to keep their minds blank. And Ray's like, guys, I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. <laughs> so here we have the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man walking through New York. 
And, and this is one of the things that I misremembered. Um, I had in my mind that uh, the Safe Puff Marshmallow Man took a big tour through the city and was doing more stuff. I was conflating the Statue of Liberty scene from the second oh, movie okay. with the Stay Puff scene in this movie. Oh, well, wow. you know, originally they were they wanted a huge scene there. They mm. wanted Stay Puff to come out of the water even oh, wow. and then make his way toward the building. And there was just no way at the time the special effects could pull that off. Yeah, that would that would have been better. I mean, but still, still, it's a cool scene. It's iconic. I mean, there's a reason there's a a giant one behind us right now. I mean, it's an iconic scene. Everybody oh, knows about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And even Peter, you know, that's something you don't see every day. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, you were talking about the effects with uh, with Gozer. I mean, come on, she did that huge flip and landed it, stuck the landing in those heels. I mean, come on. That's something. Okay. <laughs> I, I I did think that that was the only weak acting performance in the movie. That the 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 lady playing goes uh, goes. She just doesn't bring much to the movie. I mean, it's it's pretty wooden up there. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> but uh, and so I want to read uh, part six for us. Sure, part six. The Ghostbusters cross their proton pack energy streams and fire them at Gozer's portal. The explosion closes the gate, destroys the Marshmallow Man, and banishes Gozer back to its dimension. The Ghostbusters rescue Dana and Lewis and are welcomed on the street as heroes. I thought I thought it was going to destroy all life on Earth oh, if they cross the streams. <laughs> and so why exactly does crossing the streams blow up marshmallows? Well, you know, they were trying to defeat the Marshmallow Man individually, all attacking different locations or from a different place. But this is what I was talking about earlier, when they actually bring their power together to unify against something instead of, you know, they're, they're greater as a whole instead of individually. And if you think about it, they had to work together. The whole point was to close the gate. Yeah. So if the gate, I guess the, the rationale was if the gate is closed then the power that's coming through with Gozer would be stopped. So that includes the Marshmallow Man and all this kind of stuff. So by closing that gate, you know, that's when they crossed the streams yeah. was to get the doors basically to shut. Okay. Yeah. So instead of dealing with each individual ghost, they had to destroy the source. Yeah, because yeah, basically all they were doing was roasting marshmallows there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, somebody just needed a stick. <laughs> And I, I get that there's a, a theme going on here. I mean, like, you know, like as Dwayne was saying, like, you know, it's about, you know, individually they're not very impressive, but together they're accomplishing great things. Exactly. But still, the proton packs don't make any sense. So this is a movie of unity. What's that? This is a movie of unity. Yes, and and apparent apparently some depth. I, I didn't think we were getting depth from the Ghostbusters. <laughs> no. We found a little bit though. But um, and I, I I like the way it ends, despite how skeevy. Uh, you know, Peter has been toward Dana. Like she, she, you know, sees him as a hero now, and they embrace. And um, I don't know. It, it's just a funny end. I mean, it ends well. Um, I love the sequel. I mean, probably I don't know if it's anybody else other than me, but uh, I, I love the sequel. I'm glad it exists. I don't know how it makes sense. I thought they shut off the gate, to let all the ghosts into the world to start with, but I still love the sequel. And it's just a really satisfying ending. Yeah, well, you know, we had and a great all many. We had a great many, you know, side things come out of this. You know, you have Ghostbusters 2, you have the cartoon, um, and all the all the great uh, things that this movie spurned. You know. Yeah, and I mean, this is not what we're talking about, you know, on this this episode. But I really liked the uh, 2016 Ghostbusters. I mean, I, I felt like it was a, a worthy, not sequel, you know, reboot. 
I really enjoyed it. And Bill Murray had a great scene in it. There we go. Well, you know, I was looking, though, as I was researching this, you know, all of the marshmallow was actually shaving cream. <laughs> so when all the marshmallow falls upon Peck, it's oh. just a huge vat of shaving cream, essentially, that falls on him. Seems kind of appropriate. Somewhat, somewhat. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we've enjoyed uh, reviewing the show, but now we've got some um, miscellany that we do here at the end. We give out some awards, and then we discuss how Keanu Reeves connects to another aspect of pop culture here. So to begin our awards, let's go with the best scene. Sammy, what was your best scene? So best scene for me, in all honesty, is the ballroom scene at the Sedgwick Hotel. You know, there's so much going on with, um, you know, the guys trying to get Slimer. Uh, you know, so many little funny moments uh, when Egon misses and, and, and Peter's like, not shooting texts. You know, all these things. What's going on in the hallway with the manager trying to get in. To me, that's it's just the best scene. It just sets up the, the movie. It sets up what they're doing. That's mine. Dwayne, what do you got? What's your, what's your best scene? Uh, my favorite scene in this movie is when they're buying the building. And Bill Murray and Alvin Reitman are talking about how inadequate the building is, how it doesn't meet their needs, how the wiring is, is not up to par. And then Dan Eckert slides down the pole and they're just like, well, we've just lost. <laughs> you know, we, we, we've I, I just lost. I love the defeated look on Harold Ramis' face. <laughs> it's, like, it's great. It's like, oh, Ray, it's we like, had him. Really? <laughs> really, Ray? <laughs> And uh, we went into I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go into too much depth because we went into it pretty pretty much you know, a lot of depth earlier. But my favorite scene is the library scene, and specifically, I I love the the two parts of the scene when they're interviewing the librarian who's laying down for some reason nobody knows because they're not great scientists. And I love when they go downstairs. It's a little moment, but I love when they go downstairs and there's that stack of books. Yes. And Ray's like, oh, it's this amazing thing. And like, and Peter's like, yeah, because nobody would ever stack books like that. <laughs> Symmetrical book stacking. <laughs> yeah, that's just fun. <laughs> okay, so for our next one, we've got best quote. Uh, Dwayne, you got a favorite quote from this movie? I'll believe anything you want me to believe. <laughs> that's a great one. Yeah, I like that's, that. One. That's probably my favorite. And you just see where he's coming from. I just need a paycheck, guys. I'll believe whatever you want me to believe. Yep. And that establishes his character so clearly. Yeah, and, and you know, just like the uh, the purchasing of the building establishes those yeah, guys. Absolutely. This, this puts Winston where he is. Yeah. Those those two little moments tell us exactly who Ray is and who Winston is. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. My favorite quote is from that that scene where they but they're out of jail. They're in the mayor's office. And it's this little, little line. The police chief is like, um, is talking, is just kind of backing him up. And he goes, I've seen every form of combustion known to man, but I've never seen anything like this. I'm like, <laughs> what on earth are you talking about? You've seen every form of combustion. What does that even mean? What does it matter? I just, I love, and it's so, he delivers it. So it's so, with such earnestness. That's my favorite quote from the movie. I like it. Yeah. I like it. So, you know, I've already kind of given away my best quote because like I said, it's the one I use the most <laughs> in every chaotic situation I'm ever in. Cats and dogs living <laughs> together. Mass hysteria. Yeah, it's great. I just, it's my favorite. Okay. All right. Now this is a, 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 a Ghostbusters specific award. Best laugh. What made you laugh the hardest? Uh, you know, really what I thought was funny, you know, there's so many really funny moments, and, and Bill Murray's at the head of a lot of those, okay? <laughs> he really is. But, you know, the, the one scene that always cracks me up 
is the scene in Lewis's apartment at the party. And he's introducing everybody based uh, upon what their 401k is or what type of business. And even when the terror dog growls, you know, he's like, okay, who brought the dog? You know, no matter what, I always laugh at that. I saw a funny bit of trivia about that this week. That entire scene had no writing on it. <laughs> they just threw all those people in there, and every bit of that was unscripted. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, Dwayne, you got a best laugh? Uh, my best laugh. I'm, I'm, I would say anything that Rick Moranis is in. I just love his face. But I'm going to go with the classic, obvious, I've been slimed. <laughs> just the straight dead delivery of that line. I've been slimed. I, I've got, I'm going to be delicate about it. I've got a different one. There's a scene where Sigourney Weaver is trying to be really, really friendly with Bill Murray. And uh, trying to be delicate about it, but that is the scene. This may have said too much about me, I'm not sure. That's the scene where I laugh the hardest. And there's a line where Bill Murray you know, makes a comment about how crowded it is in the room. Mm-hmm. And um, that makes me laugh the hardest in <laughs> this whole movie. Funny. That is a funny scene. All right, guys. What, what is probably the thing about our podcast that is the most distinctive? Hmm. The Keanu Connection. Oh, I was going to say exceptional host. How all uh, things entertainment connects to Keanu Reeves. Yes, because Keanu makes everything better. And so um, I had to work really hard on this one. Um, As you imagine, uh, the Keanu Connection was really hard to come by. This isn't a Keanu type of movie. Now, Keanu can do comedy. You know, Ted, Theodore, Logan, all right. But this is just a different brand of comedy. So I looked high and low. I really wanted it to be Rick Moranis. I just love and respect the guy. But no, not Annie Potts either. I wanted it to be her too. I even looked at the extras. The two, I tried the two ESB kids. Uh, that didn't work. I finally hit pay dirt. It was really surprising when I found one at this time. Keanu usually picks memorable movies. But in 1996, Keanu started in a movie I had completely forgotten ever existed, even though I'm pretty sure I watched it. Feeling Minnesota. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. With Cameron Diaz, a very young Vincent D'Onofrio, and Dan Aykroyd playing a police detective. Ah. And there is this week's Keanu Connection. That was great. Um, also, we uh, like to take some time on this podcast. Uh, we, we call it Keeping It 100. And what we do is we take 100 seconds and try to sell our co-host, hopefully you, the listener, something that maybe you're not aware of, something you've forgotten about, something that we're maybe currently or in the past have enjoyed. So, Sammy, would you like to lead off on this? All right, sure. hold on. I've got I'll, the timer ready. I'll take it from there. Okay, timer Three, ready. Three, two, one, go. All right. So this week I am bringing another comic book, but this time it's not Star Trek, so these guys will appreciate <laughs> it. Um, we're teaching him, folks. Is, we're teaching him. The book is Man and Superman, and this was a recent 100-page super spectacular by the great legendary Marv Wolfman with art by Claudio Castellini. And this is the classic story of Clark's journey from the moment he enters Metropolis to when he becomes Superman. And you see that feeling of inadequacy. You see all of that growth in the character, but... What's great about it is it goes into more than just that. It shows why he falls in love with Lois Lane. It's just not because she's a pretty face. And Wolfman's even said he feels this is the best story he's ever written. Wow. All right. Good job, man. You had some time left, too. 
All right, Dwayne, do you want to go next? Yeah, I can go next. I've got a pretty good one lined up, and I don't think it's going to take me a great deal of time to sell this one either, so let me know when you're ready. Three, two, one, go. I'm, it's called Not Dead Yet, the Jason Becker story. Um, if you guys are familiar with 80s rock and roll, David Lee Roth, when he left Van Halen, started his solo career. He got the hottest guitar player on the planet, Steve Vai, to be his guy. When Steve Vai moved on, he hired a young kid, Jason Becker. Recorded one album with him, found out he was developing ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. They gave him three to five years. This was 1990. He's still alive. He's not dead yet. He's still making Hmm. music. Wow. Um, He... he, his father has created a way for him to communicate with his eyes, much like Stephen Hawking, but he doesn't have a computer to speak for him. He has a grid that he selects letters. Through that, he has recorded an album that's just been released called, um, oh, something Hearts, Triumphant Hearts or something. It's Jason Becker, and he has written the music and has got all these guest guitar players to perform on it. And it is a beautiful story of how his creativity and life has triumphed over this disease, even though he's still in this situation. Oh, wow. That's really awesome, man. Fantastic. And um, I'm, I'm going off the beaten path again. Um, okay. Um, I, a few weeks ago, I pitched a comic book series called Black Hammer. And uh, it's by my favorite comic book writer, Jeff Lemire. Or Lemire. I have no idea how to say his name. But um, he recently did a spinoff. Um, called uh, Dr. Star and the Kingdom of Lost Tomorrows. And it's um, it's revolves around a side character, a very small character from Black Hammer. And it's a very personal story about um, a, a, something that happens with his family. And he ends up separated from his family. And it's actually this really you know, emotional, moving story about Dr. Star and his son. And, um, and it's just this, this power. I don't want to give too much away because it is kind of a twist. But uh, it's just this really moving story about a father and a son and how wow. you know, life can be a problem for him. Wow, very cool. Yeah, Doctor awesome. Star in the Kingdom of Lost Tomorrows. Awesome. I'll put that on the list. All right, well, uh, we would like to uh, extend a great big thank you to HerdCon for allowing us here. And, uh, you know, the guys, I'm going to tell you, when this event happens again, you need to keep your ears to the ground and come because this has been an absolute blast. Yeah, this, this, this is our first live show. This is our first time being exhibitors, and they've been very gracious with us. And I, I've, I can't speak for everybody in the building or even at this table, but I've enjoyed our time here. Yeah, the energy is amazing. So it's, I'm really glad we got the opportunity to be able to come here and be a part of this. Yeah, will, so, uh, uh, folks, you can uh, places you can find us. Yeah, our, um, our email is roundtablenerds at gmail.com. Uh, our Facebook is. Our, our Facebook group is just Nerds of the Round Table. Um, you search us and find us. Uh, we'll we'll uh, do the ad- admitting stuff. I'm not sure. I think Dwayne does most of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we'd love to interact with you. And if you would like to have us review something in particular, if you want to give us a request, we take those through uh, Facebook or the email account, and we will take requests. So, Jamie. Hey, Dwayne. Yeah. Are you afraid of ghosts? I ain't afraid of no ghost. Whoa.